0: Welcome to the Zeal Interesting's podcast, where we discuss an interesting article or link from the week. I'm your host, Chris White. My guest this week is Ellie Day. Ellie's a software engineer at Mavenlink. Welcome to the podcast, Ellie.
1: Hi, thanks for having me, Chris. Yeah, it's been good working with you past you know six-ish months. So I'm excited to talk about front-end performance.
0: That's right. That's right. Today we are talking about front-end performance. Uh, we collaborated over the last few months on a very large, ambitious React feature. And we found ourselves running into performance kind of constraints. And we learned a ton throughout that process. So I definitely wanted to share that with the audience and get your perspective on it. So thanks for joining me.
1: Yeah, no problem.
0: So as we kind of dug into this project, what were, what were the performance limitations that we were running into? And what, we, what did we find out was driving?
1: There are many things that can go wrong. And in our case, many things did go wrong in terms of, make, in terms of making the app slow. That's right. I think at first, the big blocker for us, in the sense that we couldn't even load the browser at some point, was that we were rendering too many containers in our React application that were running too slow of functions each time an action was emitted. There's a lot of details to unpack there, and I'm not going to assume that everyone who's listening knows every detail about. React and Redux and you know even front-end web development. So that's the problem in you know, a broad but complicated sense. I think I can try and explain it in a simpler way. Um, just imagine that there's only so many cycles of compute that your browser can handle for a given frame for a given period of time. And at first we were just really getting to that limit quicker than we thought. There were a couple reasons specific to Mavenlink's architecture that was the reason for that at first.
0: Some of the underlying front-end technology that we had was contributing to some issues, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. So we, we have, at Mavenlink, we run code. Um, we have front-end code you know, going back to multiple years ago that runs on jQuery. And then Mavenlink, before I was there, switched from jQuery to Backbone, Marionette. And now we're doing a lot of things in React. Um, The problem was we still have some backbone code specifically using backbone collections every time we fetch records from the backend. That is, relatively speaking, very slow. So the the problem was is, however, the application, um, the open source library that we were using to fetch data was architected. It was emitting an action sort of all at once for each record that we were fetching from the back end and we were attempting to fetch over a thousand records. So
0: Yeah, this feature had dealt with tons and tons of data. And so as that data came back from the back end, this kind of underlying issue in the way that we were, you know, manipulating that data post fetch was really obvious in this new feature, just because the, the quantity of data was so much more than we'd ever dealt with before, right?
1: Yeah, and the thing is, you know, it was trying to do, it's trying to squeeze a whole bunch of work into a small amount of time. And, you know, if everyone, if anyone's accidentally made an infinite loop in the browser, you know, it crashes your browser. It just, you know, it's a little bit different, but it, our, mm-hmm. it would take, you know, 60 seconds or the browser would fail to, to unfreeze. That was a big problem, and
0: crashing the browser is not an ideal user experience.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, at first, you know, everyone on the team, a lot of them hadn't used React before, so they were, you know, admittedly a bit concerned because people say React is supposed to be fast. Um, but I want to step back a little bit and say that React, you know, the part that it it claims to solve isn't your application code; it's the the process of taking you know a diff and deciding whether or not it should update the DOM mm-hmm. that part is reasonably fast, but there's a lot that can go wrong, especially when you're using Redux. Um, I don't think it makes sense to go into every single detail.
0: yeah, I think it might make sense to like summarize it essentially, you know react is all these components. And the components, their job is to like show the you know render their correct thing when new data comes in. And what we were running into is because our data was changing on, on a, at a really fast pace on scroll events. All of the components were updating on these scroll events, no matter what, no matter whether they needed to or not. Yeah. And before we added optimizations, all that there was just so much more work than could happen in a period of time, and that would cause the frame rate to drop to nothing and crash the browser.
1: Yeah, in a weird way, React was almost doing its job too well because it's supposed to render when props changed. And it was doing that. The problem is that the in the eyes of React, our props were changing a thousand times in you know less than 100 milliseconds. And you really just can't have that much work going on. That was one problem we saw right away there there're sort of different levels of performance concerns that we experienced as we solved you know the most problematic ones. So I feel like one thing we could talk about later is like sort of once we we're able to get things working decently, like how did we get things working really well, mm-hmm. and how are we currently trying to like make things be super performant?
0: That's true. So when you talk about things working well or what we're working on improving. I feel like one really big moment in the project was when we figured out how to answer those questions, right? Mm-hmm. You know, anecdotally we were able to see that the the application was slow, but I feel like it was a real turning point when we gained a lot more competency in using tools to to figure out what was, what exactly was happening and what was contributing to the slowness. Can you kind of talk about what we found and uh what was most useful there?
1: Yeah, that's a great great point. For anyone who has has to develop web applications in the year twenty eighteen. I think that um, you know many many people don't know this. I I just gave a talk on Wednesday of you know I don't know when this is going to be published, but Wednesday in January about similar to this talk this podcast about performance in the browser and um, I mentioned this tool called well I actually didn't just mention I talked a lot about this tool hidden away in a tab of the Chrome dev tools. So many developers, web developers have used Chrome dev tools specifically, you know, to put something in the console, to maybe check the network tab or, you know, inspect an element. But the one I find most useful, especially when you're trying to use actual data and visualizations to see why your app is slow and where specifically the slow code is coming from the Chrome performance tab is super helpful. It's it's a bit hard in this context to really showcase its merits because it's a largely visual tool. You know. So we'll do our, our best to give you a picture of what you can do.
0: Yeah, I guess one way to say it is that if your app is slowing down, that means that your app is performing a lot of work and the, the flame graph and the performance tool can really show you what work is being performed. And you can see like what work is what what functions or, or methods are happening are like taking a long time and also which ones are being repeated unnecessarily, right? We had a lot of redundant work going on.
1: Yeah, and um Chris mentioned the term like flame graph. I don't know if you're familiar with this, whoever is listening, but a flame graph is the way I like to think of it, it's a generally you know taller it, it's a tall representation of all the functions that were called as a result of a function being called so you would ha- end up having a bunch of labeled bars that are underneath a top level function and you can see on a timeline how f- how long that outer function took And how long every function that was called as a result of it, you know, how long that each function took. So, the use case is, for example, let's just say you have an event, an event listener that's listening to a wheel event. What you'll be able to see in the Chrome Performance tab is a piece of the flame graph that says at the top level, event wheel mm-hmm. and you'll see that that event wheel you know ideally you want your events to that section to take you know under 20 milliseconds or
0: right so that you get you know if it falls if a if a if an event takes more than like 20 milliseconds then you'll have your frame rate drop to where it's noticeable to the user right
1: yeah so um just to step back a little bit the general rule, rule of thumb is any code should take less than sixteen milliseconds because that's one f that's like one frame in a sixty fps time frame.
0: And we were seeing like uh, scroll events that were taking over a thousand milliseconds to resolve, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. So that's the goal is you know pretty lofty, um, especially if you aren't optimizing at all. And we did eventually get you know closer to that that. 60 fps but um it's actually harder than you think um but just going back to that event wheel example you know we have an interface that we worked on where when the user scrolls their mouse or swipes on the touchpad we trigger an event that we want things to happen in this case it's shifting shifting the screen to essentially move the position of the the table that we're rendering and um like Chris mentioned, that was taking at one point a thousand milliseconds just to process the code that was needed as a result of that mouse
0: wheel. So something that we wanted to take one sixtieth of a second was taking one second.
1: Exactly. So if you do the math at home, that is uh, you know not sixty fps; it's one fps, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So something you know, yeah, it's not it's not good. That's the main thing to remember.
0: And the events were happening many times a second, so we were actually like we were essentially like falling behind in time, where we were queuing more work than could be completed before the next event fired, and that's probably what was locking up and crashing the browser.
1: Yeah, exactly. Chrome just couldn't handle the amount of work that was coming in, and it just it just gave up. So the cool thing is though, um, we talked about how the flame graph is is a vertical representation of function calls over time in a nested format as a result of a function being called, kind sort of the thing that kicked off this like work that had to happen. So if you imagine that given an event wheel, we can see where those thousand milliseconds were spent. you know there's always some amount of work that's going to be done, and the Chrome performance profiler, when you do a recording, it lets you see exactly, you know, 100 milliseconds was spent doing this.
0: Specifically, it was like, you know, certain numbers of hundreds of milliseconds were being spent rendering certain components, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. So in our case, a big percentage of that was, um, like Chris mentioned, was rendering. But then a lot of it was a mix of backbone code that just happened. Repeatedly, essentially making adding things to a collection, which then because that stuff changed, it had to render React components. And it was sort of like a, a bad cycle because every time you changed it, it triggered another change. And it's just, it, it just was too much for the browser to handle. It's definitely hard to imagine if you haven't seen. The profiling tab, I would suggest maybe opening it up you know, at this time and sort of click around and then come back and press play.
0: It can be pretty overwhelming at first to like see all of that data, but once you start understanding what you're looking at, it can be pretty game-changing because as a developer, whenever I've troubleshooted performance issues, a lot of what I've done in the past has been just intuition-based. Like, oh, well this is tied to a network request, so I think that's this part is probably taking a lot of time, or this is like changing things on the screen, and so that that's probably taking some time, and so we can optimize there. But you can actually answer the question very, very specifically: What is my browser doing, and why is it taking a long time to do things? Because you can see exactly which lines of code are triggering things that cause a lot that take a long time. Which just kind of exploded in my mind, right? Like it, before, it was like, "Oh, it's this like." magic and I'm going to roughly make this magic better and now it's like I know exactly what is happening and when and I can, you know, some some things we have to do but a lot of things we ended up not having to do. So once we understood the problem better what were like the top three things we did in this complicated React app to make
1: it better? Great question. I think the first strategy that we implemented was and this was a really big improvement. Ended up fixing a lot of the issues we had was memoization of selectors that were used in React containers. So that's a lot of buzzwords. Um, it is. But simply put, we cached things. We. Right. I don't know, like, an uh, even more simpler way to explain it, but basically, we used a library called Reselect which has this concept of a selector, and it allowed us to let our React containers, React and Redux containers, know that, hey, we have calculated this prop that you want to use before, so just use this one instead of trying to do that work again. And what that meant for us was that we didn't produce new objects every time a map state to props function was called, which was a lifesaver because that meant that even though this wasn't going to fix everything, every time we ran map state to props on our app, it was able to run that code a thousand times, but it didn't actually render anything.
0: Right, so anytime you're like state or uh, in, in Redux, like this big state tree updates, every one of your components has to decide whether it needs to update or not. And by using reselect and and this memwise selector pattern, we were able to better control when that needed to happen, right? We were able to tell a bunch of containers that they didn't need to update when we knew they wouldn't need to update. I think that that was probably the best new thing that we introduced to, to fix the performance issues.
1: Yeah, and I wanted to talk a little bit about why I think it got to that point in the first place because, you know, the common assumption especially for newer React developers is that oh, React is fast. React handles all the complicated things, you know, that make it so it doesn't have to render to the DOM every every time your prop changes. But the thing is, when you add Redux into the mix, which is a very common state management library that is used at Mavenlink and you know, many other places, it makes things a bit more complicated because by default, the way that React decides if something is the same or equal isn't the same way that a human would typically you know, look at two things and decide whether something is the same or not. It uses reference equality, if I'm using the right term correctly, instead of you know I, I don't know like you know it what was the other office so now it's the number 1
0: looks like the number 1 but if it wasn't the same number 1 that you assigned at the same time to memory then react would say that's not that's not the the same number 1 even though they're both the value of that is 1 in both cases
1: yeah that's a great great example it's kind of like if you have two identical you know MacBooks, you probably won't be able to tell the difference, but each one has like its own serial number. So, um, if we're going with that example, like yeah, they're the same. You know, you can do the same things. They look the same, right? You wouldn't
0: like to extend your MacBook analogy. You wouldn't. If you got a new MacBook, and then the next day you got another new MacBook. You wouldn't. If you were running a store, you wouldn't like change out which MacBook was on the shelf. It was the same MacBook, but mm-hmm. because computers use references to memory. The, the computer version of your of the store owner would probably swap them out because it was a new macbook
1: yeah so the reason this I'm bringing this point up is because i feel like you know the code side of coding is definitely important but i think the people side you know the organizational side getting everyone on board with you know techniques that do improve performance is you know just as important as actually implementing the code and i think because it wasn't really common sense to it wasn't default assumption wasn't that react would use reference equality it like seemed illogical that it wouldn't be able to tell that something was the same even though it was i think there was a period of time when we were trying to fix this that a lot of people just weren't on the same page with the proposed solution largely because the solution seemed like something that wouldn't have been needed you know oh it's slow you must be doing you know something wrong i think whenever you're trying to fix the solution it's not just like coming to the conclusion of like this is the best way to do it it's um it's important to get your team on board and educate and make sure that the reasons why are covered and not just like that it fixes it so just wanted to bring that up because um we did have a team that was you know, Chris and I have done a lot of React, and especially at prior, we had more experience than a lot of the team. But I think, like, not just like getting this working, but you know, helping the team understand why it's working was beneficial um, further down the line as the project continued.
0: It helped to build buy-in, and it helped uh, all of the other team members to become advocates for for you know keeping with these practices and keeping an eye on performance. It, it wasn't just the uh, the people who had done React. It, it went from the job of keeping this app performant is the job of the people who have done a lot of React in the past. It, it went from that very quickly to it is the team's job to understand what impacts performance and to be advocates for performance. And I feel like that, that transition, that, that we I feel like that happened and that was great when it happened. And, and uh, the whole team kind of rallied together on performance and kept an eye on it.
1: Yeah. Looking back from when we started the project to to the end and even, you know, in the present, I think it became clear that you can't just do whatever you want in in the JavaScript world. I think, you know, if your project is of smaller scale, you, you don't have to really be concerned about every single millisecond of, you know, compute that you do. But when you're trying to render a a table with a thousand elements in it. You're not just going to be able to like run the code and hope for the best. It's going to hit some limit, you know, that the browser is capable of. You made
0: an excellent point in your tech talk earlier this week and saying that you know, unlike our cloud servers, we don't have control over the computer that's running this, and the browser is, you know, our browser tab only has a single processor thread on somebody's computer that we don't have control over, right?
1: Hmm. Yeah, you, you really have a finite resource. You know, developers often work on eight-core development machines or MacBook Pros with, you know, i7 processors.
0: Or cloud servers that we can just instantly scale up and add more resources to, right?
1: Exactly. So it's like, we also have typically fast internet. But I think the assumption is that, you know, we can just scale up our, you know, turn up our dynos on Heroku or something, Um You know, you're kind of stuck with what you get. I think, especially when you're dealing in the enterprise market, people aren't always on the fastest computers.
0: And they're not using very nice browsers a lot of times.
1: Yeah, exactly. So the thing is, performance matters. We've learned that. And I think that it was kind of surprising that I was, you know, familiar with this partly because I worked on projects in the past where I I had to build you know, interactive software. You know, this was in 2015 and 2016. I had to build software that still supported very old inter- versions of Internet Explorer, you know, mobile phones running Chrome on mobile. So I was like aware that like you don't have unlimited resources to accomplish the task. And um, I think I'm hoping that, you know, as time goes on, people do think about the worst case scenario in the same way that, you know, a lot of backend things, you think about things going wrong. I think it's just, it's different with front-end development because a lot of the the language the market the marketing materials of front-end web development is that oh yeah browsers are so fast nowadays like react is fast javascript is fast the rendering engine is fast that's like true but there's always going to be resources that are slower there's going to be lots of different problems and you know there is a limit of things you can do like you don't have unlimited time, and I think that's
0: yeah. It was definitely a really interesting project because normally I've seen performance things get out of control late in a project, but we actually had, I guess, the fortunate problem of seeing our performance problems right away because very early on in the project, it you know this is a, it was a scheduling related project with lots of things on an interactive calendar, and so the amount of stuff we were putting on the screen and allowing people to manipulate was very, very high at the beginning of the project. So I feel like we were able to discover our limitations really early on.
1: Yeah, that's very true. And specifically to Mavenlink's uh, front-end infrastructure, this was the first project that really, I think, tested the open source libraries that we used in a way that it didn't in prior projects. So we actually exposed some you know, issues with how it was architected and that was another effort to improve the performance of the front end that we had to do. So I think it was it was a great, you know, growing experience for the engineers at MavenLink because we were just working with very large amounts of data and, you know something that takes ten milliseconds, you know, oh, that's a very small fraction of a second. You know, that's not gonna that's not gonna you know hurt us. Um, if you are doing that you know thousands of times, that's multiple seconds, right? Yeah, yeah, so I think that was kind of the the mantra we embraced. It's like every millisecond matters. I think people lo- often looked at me like, what that that's ridiculous, but um, I think, especially Chris and I advocating for these different approaches really started we were able to convince a lot of people that you know this is something that we need to work on, we need to educate the rest of the team and we're actually midway through the project we added a dedicated performance ta- uh epic in pivotal tracker which i think was a really you know good turning point to we
0: tr- we started treating it as like a first class feature of the product right and had a whole pair of developers working on it at all times
1: yeah and i i really appreciated that because you know as someone who has more experience with performance i really Enjoyed the fact that it wasn't all on my shoulders, you know, solve all these things. I, it was just nice that, you know, my experience was able to, like, yeah. get people up to speed. Yeah. Well, I, lo- I personally
0: learned a ton in this project and I learned a lot from you. So thank you, Ellie. Oh, uh,
1: thanks. Yeah.
0: Uh, we do need to wrap up at this point. Before we go, though, uh, is there anything that you'd like to draw our listeners' attention to? Uh, is there a way they can reach out to you?
1: Sure. So a good way to reach me is on my Twitter. My Twitter handle is hey Ellie Day. So that's Hey as in hello. And then Ellie Day, I'm assuming my name will be written somewhere.
0: Yep. We'll include a link in our show notes.
1: Okay. Awesome. And I just wanted to mention some, I guess, like side project that I've been working on for a while that is pretty cool. It's around mentoring up and coming tech talent um, with a focus on software engineering, just because that's my area of expertise. One thing I've noticed is frequent, but, you know, sort of brief meetings with a mentor is super helpful for people who are getting into technology, especially coding. I've, you know, seen that with people I mentor, but problem is type of people who are good mentors often have a lot going on. That's true. Makes sense. I think that I I realized that I could solve that sort of equation, like, People need frequent mentorship, but how do I get quality mentors to mentor frequently? That's sort kind of where Mentor Weekly came from. The the little twist that is sets it apart from, I guess, past attempts at at you know having mentorship programs is that companies employ lots of talented uh, software engineers and different tech professionals, and they're also looking for you know qualified candidates, and they also often have constrained resources to sort of pre-vet you know candidates, especially if they're you know of a more junior level. So the idea is companies could let their employees mentor a up-and-coming software engineer, for example, mentor them for thirty minutes a week, perhaps, and in exchange that that mentee, that candidate, can um, sort of get connected to the company go through that, those mentoring sessions as a bit of a preliminary interview. And um, it's sort of a win-win because the mentee can get access to a qualified mentor. The company can get access to a candidate that is learning from this mentor and learning you know, that this is a cool company. You know, They have this cool person that I'm working with.
0: Yeah, I love that. It's like you are solving the problem of, It's fun to mentor, but it's difficult to maintain that effort as an individual mentor. And also, you know, software companies are always looking for new talent and connecting with that talent and kind of shepherding that talent is a very useful thing, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. So I can give more information about this on my Twitter. It's still in soon to be launched phase. So if you want to check out my Twitter at twitter.com slash day. Um, I'll be posting more information about that at some point, and then it's great because I sort of you know have proof that it's working because I've dog fooded the idea with two mentors, and I got one of one of my mentees, well, two mentees. I got one of them connected with an interview at, at Mavenlink, which is great. Awesome. You know, one of my other mentees is helping me build the the Mentor Weekly site, so she's learning a ton, and um, it's been great great experience so that's fantastic uh, yeah yeah so speaking of great experiences uh, this podcast has been really fun so thanks for you know having me on it
0: yeah totally so hey ellie uh are you a podcast listener yourself
1: i do listen to podcasts from time to time cool cool
0: have you ever wondered how to help your pod the podcast that you love grow bigger
1: yeah i mean i think that's always what you want to do is help your the people that give you cool information out right
0: that's right. That's right. So if you, our listener, want to help us out in growing the podcast, it would be super helpful if you were to leave us a positive review on the podcast platform of your choice like iTunes or Google Play. It actually does help us reach a lot of more a lot more people. So let's wrap up. Thank you so much, Ellie, for joining me today. It was super fun. And thank you for listening. If you want even more interestings, please sign up for our newsletter at codingseal.com slash interestings. We are our, our newsletter, we collect Interesting articles, and then we try to kind of distill them, summarize them, give a little blurb about them, uh, and make it very convenient for you to find out new things, some new interesting things. Uh, and also follow us on Twitter at Coding Zeal. Thank you very much.